Good morning, everyone. Uh, the reason why we've just done what we've done uh, is pretty self-explanatory, but there are two parts of our service that are uh, really vitally important that we have uh, most people in the room for. Uh, and those two parts of the service are actually the call to worship at the beginning of the service and, and the reading of God's Word. And so uh, on both of those, we're going, this is what we're going to do from now on uh, when it comes to the reading of God's Word. We want people to be in the room for that. But also, you, you notice there I said, uh, the second really, really important part of our service is the call to worship. And that happens at the... Wh- 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 when does that happen? At the... At the start. All right? So what does that mean? When do you need to be here? At the start. Well done. Right. That'll be great. Uh, so... Those are two vital parts of our service, actually, called the worship and the reading of God's Word. We are starting today a new series in, in 1 Timothy. So if you have your Bible, please open up to uh, 1 Timothy. Uh, looking forward to this series. It's, we, we don't know how long it's going to run yet. We'll just take it week by week. Uh, but we're doing the first five verses today as a sort of an introduction to 1 Timothy. This is God's Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of our God, of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is the Word of God. Let me pray first before we open this up together. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You speak And we thank you that you have chosen to speak through your word. And Father, I thank you that you have not left us in the dark as to how we are to do church. And Father, we thank you for these words from Paul to Timothy that show us. Father, I pray this morning as we... uh, just look at these words together, that you'll be with us and, and, and teach us. Father, I thank you for the words of Scripture where Jesus said that, that we can do nothing without him. And so we know this morning that anything of any value that will come out of our time together this morning will be produced by the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, that's what we plead for. We plead that your Holy Spirit would move amongst us this morning and take the, the word that, that the Holy Spirit has written and plant it deep into our hearts and that we would know it's from you. Help us to listen, O oh Lord. Help us to come before you now with open hearts and open minds to receive what you have for us. Thank you that you're a God who does communicate. Father, this morning we pray for our world around us, uh, broken as it is. 
Father, we pray again for the Middle East. We pray for peace. We pray for your church there. We pray for the saints who will gather to worship. We pray that you would encourage them and bless them. We pray that you would just move mightily amongst them. And Father, we pray for peace. Father, we pray for our own land. Uh, we pray for wisdom, for leaders, for guidance, for direction. Father, that, that your word would be respected. Father, we need you to move here amongst us in our nation. Father, we pray for the church in this land. Father, we pray for saints all across this land this morning who will gather to worship King Jesus. We pray that you would just enable them this morning to lift the name of Jesus higher than every other name in every place the saints gather this morning. And Father, we pray continually that we would see gospel-centered gospel-driven churches planted all over this nation. That those pockets of light, those just places of your kingdom would spring up all over. Father, thank you that you're with us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I am not sure if you're aware of it this morning or you can hear it. But genuinely, it sounds like Timmy Kernigan is getting a hammer in that room. I, I don't know what's going on out there with the kids' ministry this morning, but can somebody see if Timmy's okay? Because it sounds as if he's getting bit. But uh, This morning, we are in Timothy. I'm excited about this series. Uh, we did a, uh, our doctrine class the other night was on ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And essentially, that's what First uh, Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus are. They are letters about the church, what the church is supposed to be like. Uh, if you're looking for a book to go to to find out what the church should look like, this is probably one of the best. As I say, its companions, Second Timothy and Titus, address the very questions, what the local church ought to look like. What should it be like? What should it be doing? What should the priorities be of the local church? How should the local church be ordered and overseen? How should the local church uh, focus its resources? How should the local church relate to one another? All of these things are contained in these three short letters. This letter is written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Timothy is like Paul's protege in the faith, his apprentice, as it were, in the faith. And he's writing to this young pastor to instruct him how to order and how to see the church overseen in the place that he is, to a local church. And what we find here is not only a description of what the church would have been like then and should have been like then. This is like 30 years after Christ was ministered, after he died, after he was raised from the dead, after he ascended. This is 30 years after that, and we get a letter to the church to see what it would be like. But not only do we get a letter to, to show what the church should be like then, we get a letter to show what the church should be like now. That is, this is both 
uh, descriptive. You'll have heard me use these terms before. This is both descriptive and prescriptive for the church. What, what does that mean? That means that it is describing the way the church should have been then, but it is also giving us the formula for how the church should be now. So if that is the case, and that this letter is both descriptive and prescriptive, what do we see in the church today globally? So if this letter of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus is both descriptive of how the church should, should have been, prescriptive for how the church should be now, what do we see in the church globally today? Well, what we see, I think, are, are three commonly taken positions in the church today. There's this. There's the liberal view of the church today. And the liberal view is this. The message of the Scriptures is outdated. The message of the Scriptures is outdated. So what we need to do is we need to change the message. We need to change what it says and sometimes we also think that the model that is described in, in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus is outdated. So what the liberal church sometimes will do is we'll both change the message and we'll change the model of how we do things. So, again, that's why we see things like same-sex marriage being allowed in some churches. We see openly homosexual ministers in some churches. Why? Because the message is seen as outdated. And often the model is seen, seen as outdated also. So we change the message and we change the model. The second view commonly held in the world, so that's the first view, that's the liberal view. The second view that is held in the, in the church today across the globe is this. The message is okay. We'll keep the message, but the model needs to change. We'll keep the message, but the model needs to be changed. We see a lot of this in modern evangelical circles of how we do church. We won't change the message, but we'll update the methods. And if we just get the methods right, then the message will have more impact. Just think about that for a moment. If we change the methods and the model, then the message will have more impact. You see, behind that model is the assumption that God gives us the message and leaves the methods up to us, leaves, up, leaves just how we do things up to ourselves. And then there's the third model. I would suggest the biblical model that we see in 1 Timothy today. We see it all over the world in, in many, many places. And the third model, and that's the one I'm interested in, is this that the pastoral epistles both say that the message is okay and the model is okay. The message is good that we find in the Bible, and the model that we find in the Bible is also good. That the message is the one that should be proclaimed, and the model is the one that should be held. Both of those things are good, and that's what we'll find in 1 Timothy. Paul says the gospel works. The message doesn't need to be updated. 
It needs to be clearly repeated in every single generation. The message is good. It is true. So the message stays the same. But furthermore, the biblical model says the gospel works, the message is good, but the model has to be held as well. And that is for the good of a local congregation, a local church. And so that's what we're going to get into as we go through First Timothy. What I'm going to do, actually, and I'll give you a heads up now what I'm going to do over the next couple of weeks. I'm going to do verses 1 to 5 today, and then we as a church are coming up to Deacon's Elections again. So next week, what I'm going to do is skip forward. I'm going to go to chapter 3, uh, where we see the qualifications for deacons, and then I'm going to come back to, to the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2. But be here next week is what I'm saying, because we're coming up to an important time again for the church deacons' elections, and I really want us to, we really want us to focus on these qualifications of uh, deacons. So please be here next week. So how does Paul start this letter to Timothy, his young protege in the faith, his young apprentice? First thing to note here is that Paul is reminding Timothy of his own God-appointed ministry. His own God-appointed ministry. Look, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. That's important. That is vitally important. Paul was commissioned by Christ himself. He doesn't just decide one day, right, this is, this is actually really, really important. And, and we're, we're 10 years down the line now, so we can say these sort of things. But this is really important. It is not okay for someone just to wake up in the morning and be like, oh yeah, let's start a church. There has to be a God-appointed calling and a God-appointed sending to do that. There has to be. And Paul is making it clear here that he is commissioned by Christ himself to do the work. That is where he gets his authority from. He's not plucking it out of the air. He's not just waking up and deciding to do this. He, he's saying, Christ commissioned me himself. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, that's where he gets his authority, our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, and, fa and fa the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Really important how he starts. He is reminding Timothy of the authority of which the rest of the letter is going to come under and where he gets that authority. Right. Where does he start, though? Where does he start? If you had four pages, roughly four pages here of this, of this book, if you had four pages to write to a young preacher to give him a, a, a theology of ministry, that would last a lifetime, that would, that would be written down in the pages of Scripture, four pages, if you had a chance to do that, where would you start? What would be the most important things that you would give him? What would be the most important things that you would say? I would imagine it wouldn't be where Paul starts. I would imagine it wouldn't be where Paul starts. I can see me and I can see you possibly starting off with something like this. Timothy, love the people that you will minister to. Love them well. Love them like they're your own. Love them. You could maybe start like that. 
or I could see us starting like, you know, pray for the people. Pray like your life depends on it. Pray for the people who are under your care. Pray for them. Those would be both good things to say, both biblical things to say. But is that where Paul starts? No. In this critical letter to this young pastor who is going to take charge of many churches, where does he start? He starts with this. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That's where he starts. That's where he starts. He starts by saying, Timothy must actively check for false teaching in the church. Number one priority for you, Timothy, is make sure that there is no false teaching happening in your church. That's a surprising way to start, isn't it? I don't think I would have started that way, and I don't think you would have started that way. We might have put it somewhere down the line, but we, might, we probably wouldn't have started there. And this just shows us how important the truth was to the Apostle Paul. I want, you to, I want us to see here in these first three, few verses, there are, there are two negative exhortations and a positive exhortation. Paul starts with a negative exhortation in these verses, 3 and 4, and then he moves to a positive one. 3 and 4, he says this, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Two negative exhortations. Make sure they're not doing this. Make sure they're not doing that. Teach them not to. Instruct them not to. Paul is saying to Timothy, your first key in ministry is this. Instruct them not to teach false doctrine. You see, that just shows us how important truth is. Paul, the Apostle Paul, and why is it important? The Apostle Paul knows that false teaching leads to false living. The Apostle Paul knows that false teaching leads to false living. False doctrine always, always leads to an error in living. Always. Folks, false teaching hurts people. It hurts people. And that's why the Apostle Paul starts where he starts. He could have started with love, love them, pray for them. But he knows. He knows that it is actually false teaching that will give them the most harm, that will do them the most harm, that will hurt them the most in the long run. And that's why he starts where he starts. He says, Timothy, the first thing I want you to do, the very reason I left you in Ephesus, is to keep men from teaching falsely. And he, and he, 
he characterizes this false teaching in what he says. He says, let me, let me, let me show you what false teaching does. It does this. So that they may not charge certain persons to teach different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which what? Promote speculation rather than stewardship. What false teaching does is leads to idle speculation. It leads to disputes. It, it, it leads to these endless myths and genealogies that Paul talks about. Paul is saying that false teachers, first and foremost, are about getting you to follow them. False teachers, first and foremost, are about getting you to follow them. They are about getting you to agree with their position. They are about getting you to agree with their speculative ideas. I have, I have conversations with people all the time. I know you find that hard to believe, but I do. Uh, I talk to people sometimes when I have to. Uh, I have, and as a pastor what you'll find is people try to suss you out really quickly, right? People try to suss out what you believe about certain things really quickly. If you say you're a pastor and they're a Christian, they'll try to suss out what you believe. And so if the, if the conversation very quickly turns to either end times or, or gifts of the Spirit, I will very quickly know that that's your thing. I will very quickly know that, that that is your niche and you have a thing about those things. And the thing about Scripture is that it teaches us that we should never have a thing about a thing. We, we, we should not have a thing. And the crazy thing about it is that people have built whole ministries about things. People have built whole ministries around end times. People have built whole ministries around the gifts of the Spirit. And Scripture teaches that we shouldn't have things about things. It just shouldn't be the case. Scriptures never teach us to get really into one thing, to become focused on that one thing, to become obsessed with that one thing and never talk about anything else. It just doesn't do that. Because Paul says here what that does is inevitably it ends up with myths that promote speculation. For example, and I quote this to you often, considering the end times, right? And that is a rabbit hole that some people just love to go down, right? Let me again, Matthew 24, 36. No one knows the day or the hour. Jesus says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So when you get your favorite TikToker, if that is even a thing, telling you that they know when the end times is coming, they're wrong. They're wrong. They don't know. Jesus doesn't know. Only the Father. Yeah? Are we all good on that one? Because I seem to be hammering that nail like a lot. Yes? We're good. Good. See, that's the thing. Speculation. Myths. Genealogies. Timothy says, or Paul says to Timothy, 
No. Cut it out. Make sure that nonsense is not happening in your church. Cut it out. Now, as I say, this shows us how important the truth is to Paul in ministry. And the disaster of false teaching is this. It always sidetracks people from the central elements of the Christian faith. It always sidetracks. It always distracts. Like, yeah. You know, I'm always on about yapping, yapping on about being really careful who you listen to and who you don't listen to and all of that. Well, our connect group has tasked me with, with the task of writing a list, right? And, and we're going to use the green, amber, and red system for the list of teachers and false teachers, right? So uh, if anybody wants to add to that list or has any recommendations to that list, please come my way. Uh, and just don't be shocked when I give you the answer. That's all, that's all I'm saying. Just don't be annoyed when I give you the answer. Uh, here's the deal. False teaching hurts people. And false teaching always leads to false living. And Paul wants to guard against that in the church. And I want to guard against it in this church. Right. What is the aim of this? What is the goal of this charge that, that, that Paul is giving young Timothy? As I urged you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Here's the thing. The aim of our charge is what? Love. The reason we're doing this is love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. This is the goal. So if Paul's starting point is, start, is always to be looking out for false teaching, point out what's, what's going on wrong, we're explicitly told in verse, in verse 5, the aim of that charge is what? Love. Paul is giving us here the summary of the goal of his discipleship program. Love. What he tells us here, and what he tells every local congregation, the ministry of truth and sound doctrine, the aim is love. Ultimately, that's what we want. Ultimately, that is when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was. What was it? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. To love God and others. That is the aim. That's the aim. And Paul sets this aim out over against false teachers. And he says, we, we're doing this. We're trying to keep you in the truth because we love you and we want you to love False teachers, on the other hand, do not want that for you. False teachers, on the other hand, want you to follow them. They want you to build their ministry. And they, want that you, and they, and they simply want you to agree with them. It's not about love. It's nothing to do with love. False teaching is nothing to do with love. It is about trying to get you to follow them, and it's trying to get you to agree with them. False teachers and false teaching doesn't care about your life. 
It doesn't care about the transforming grace that is available in Christ Jesus. They want you to be speculative about things. They want you to just get tied up in knots over these silly little arguments that go on. And that's what I say, they distract from the main thing. And Paul says the main thing here is actually love. Love God, love neighbor. That's the instruction. That's the goal. From a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. Right. We need to stop at this point and think. And ask. Why do I share my opinions on biblical things? That, that, that's a question you need to ask yourself, by the way. I'm just, not, I'm just not up here asking myself that question. You need to ask. Why do, I, why do you share your opinions on biblical things? Why do you do it? Do I do it so that others might actually love more deeply? Do I do it so that they will love the Lord their God more clearly and more deeply? And do I do it because the goal is that they will love their neighbors better? Or do I do it so that I will get people onto my way of thinking? You know, if I can coerce you into the way that I think, then that will validate my position. Do you do it so that you will just get people to agree with you and build your little empire of, of the way that you think? Or do you do it because you want people to love? Do you do it so that you might look actually more biblically clued in than you really are? trying to confer or convey a persona of knowledge. And the actual case is when you open your mouth, people know rightly they don't, you don't know as much as you think you know. Neither of these ways are ways in which we should share anything to do with the Scriptures. If they are, you would be safer saying nothing. If it is to build your own little empire, if it is to convey your own little thoughts about what you believe, if it is to build a, a little kingdom around you of people who think the same and, and say the same and, and go down the same rabbit holes, stop. If it is to look more biblically clued in than you are, stop. If it is so that people will love the Lord their God more deeply, if it is that people would love each other more deeply, then go for it. The aim of Paul's charge to Timothy is love. And if the aim is love, where does that love come from? Now, what, it's interesting here. This, this, this verse could be interpreted two different ways. And I'll give you my interpretation in a moment. But if you read it, it could be interpreted two different ways. I'll start in verse 4. 
nor to devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. Now, that could be read that, that Paul is saying that the charge he is giving is love, and it comes from him, a, a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. I don't think that's the way it reads. I don't think that's the way it reads. If you look at the construction of the sentence, Paul is actually saying, our charge is love. So we're trying to get you to love out of what? Those things. We're trying to get you to love out of a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. The goal is love. And that love can only come from pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. So, pure heart. If we are to love properly, Paul says that we must have a pure heart. And what Paul is saying here again, as we know that this is not the physical beating organ within our chest, it is the very center of who we are. Why on earth would Paul say we need a pure heart before we can actually love properly? Well, Paul knew more than most that we are sinners. We are sinners. Scriptures tell us that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. We are corrupted. We are depraved. And genuine Christian love must emanate from a pure heart. Remember when David was convicted of his own sin in the Old Testament? David was, what, what, was, what was the prayer that he prayed? Create in me a what? A clean, pure heart, O Lord. David knew that that's what he needed most of all. He needed to be purified. He needed to be made right. He needed that anything good that would come from him would come from that purification. And it's the same with us. We need to pray for that purity of heart. We need to pray that God would clean our hearts because we are indeed deceitfully wicked. We need to be changed from the inside out. We need the Spirit of God to move within us to change us. That's why so much false teaching is just absolute rubbish because it's, it works from the outside in rather from the inside out. Five steps to a better marriage. Ten steps to a, a better you, whatever. Do all that you want. See if your inside's not changed. Won't make one bit of difference. Comes from inside. Pure heart. Good conscience. What does that mean? It's a in the New Testament when it talks about a good conscience, it refers to awareness, a simple awareness of rightness and wrongness according to God's standards. That's what it is. A self-awareness of where we are right and where we are wrong in relation to God's standards. That's what a good conscience is. 
You're not making it up as you go along. You're not making up your own rules. You're, 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 you're measuring your life standards to the standards of Scripture. That's a good conscience. And finally, a sincere faith. A sincere faith. Not a lazy assent to some form of Christianity. Not some lazy, sort of believe this, sort of don't. Belief in the gospel. But a wholehearted embrace of the promises of God and His Word. A sincere faith. Paul says the goal of his instruction is love. The goal of our discipleship is to see Christians loving God and loving neighbor from who they are. That's the goal. That is the the goal of that's the goal of the preaching ministry. That's the goal of the gospel. That's the, the goal of all of this is to see people come to faith in Christ Jesus, then be discipled in their faith. And the goal of that discipleship is to see them conformed into the image of Christ. And that image of Christ will see them love the Lord their God with all their heart and all their mind and all their soul and all their strength. And it will see them love their neighbor as their self. That's the goal. The goal, folks, here in Cornerstone Church is that. That is the goal. The goal is not to get bums on seats. The goal is not that we come here on a Sunday and have a good time. The goal is not that we do any of those things. The goal is that we mature in our faith and we love the Lord our God with all our heart and we go out into the world and love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the goal. It's really funny how Paul starts this letter. And where that comes from, where that love comes from, is sound doctrine. People always say to me, oh, I hate doctrine. I hate the word doctrine. Sound doctrine is one of the most important things in your life. Sound biblical doctrine is one of the most important things in your life. And if you want to grow in the gospel and you want to grow in your faith, you better embrace it. So this is where Paul starts. Watch out. Make sure there's no false teaching going on. Why am I telling you this? Because I want you to love. I want you to love. Ultimately, when we look at those three areas where that love comes from, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith, none of us have that in totality. None of us. Not one. Not one in this room. 
Not one in this room is a pure heart. Not one in this room has a has a a clean, con clear, cl clearly clean conscience. Not one of us has a genuine, hundred percent sincere faith. But who does? There is one who did, one who does. His name is Christ Jesus. And it is in him we stand. It is in him we stand. I am so thankful that I do not stand here today on my own, nor you sit there on your own. But if you're in Christ, you're in Christ. You're in Christ. And so we can strive for. We can have grace-driven effort toward a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a sincere faith that will lead us to real love. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Father, help us. Help us through the person of the Holy Spirit to stay away. Help us. I, I pray that you would help us to stay away from myths and endless genealogies. Help us to focus on the things that you've called us to focus on, and that is loving you and loving our neighbor. Oh, Lord, if we just did that, how different would this place be? How different would our world be? How different would this church be? If we devoted ourselves to love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.